And turn with me to the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, that's okay. Today's an easy one for you. We're looking at the last book of the Bible. So if you just turn to the very back of the red Bibles and the chairs around you, uh, you'll uh, find our passage on page 1031, uh, beginning at the bottom there and going on to page 1032. We're looking at Revelation 7 today. As we continue on in our study of this book, we're kind of at the end of the second of seven cycles that John uh, receives these visions in. And uh, each vision, each cycle is kind of a snapshot. It's a picture of history from both God's perspective and from ours. And today we're coming to kind of to the end of the, of the second cycle uh, that John receives. And we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 7. The entire chapter, and then actually, uh, I'm also going to read chapter 8, verse 1. So I'd invite you to follow along as I read to you. John says that after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. 
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would be here in our midst this morning, that you would take your word and press it deeply into our hearts, deeply into our minds and imaginations, that we might understand who you are in greater ways, that we might grow in our knowledge of you and our love for you, that we might have a better understanding of your gospel of grace. And so we might leave this place full of hope and certainty and the assurance of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I met David really probably the first week that I was at seminary. Uh, Stephanie and I moved to St. Louis to begin Covenant Seminary uh, the summer of 1993. And uh, that summer we were there, uh, we got put on these uh, move crews, as they called it, where you would actually help other students that were moving into the various uh, apartment buildings on campus. And uh, one of those times that I was helping out with one of the move crews, I met David. We struck up a friendship, even though he was 20 to 25 years older than me. We began to get together on occasion for lunch, and he really kind of took on kind of a mentoring role for me in some ways. And I began to learn some of his story and had a fascinating, uh, very uh, interesting background. Uh, one thing I remember he, te- he told me was the fact that he had served as a Special Forces Green Beret during the Vietnam War. And that fascinated me, and so I started asking all kinds of questions, and he stopped me and he said, we're not talking about that. Uh, what he had seen, what he had done, the things he had been involved in were too painful. And so he didn't want to talk about those things. But the other interesting thing that I learned about him was that he had come to seminary after a long and very successful career as an attorney in Nashville, mostly for musicians. Uh, he had served uh, many musicians that you would know the names of, including uh, many uh, contemporary Christian musicians in the 1980s. At the pinnacle of his career, he decided to walk away from it all to go to seminary. He felt the Lord was calling him. Uh, he wanted to serve. He wanted to equip God's people, especially pastors and church leaders in Eastern Europe. And David died several years ago. Uh, He died essentially penniless. He used the incredible amount of wealth that he had developed over his life for ministry and for blessing others. He died crippled by Parkinson's disease. If you had met him, you would be overwhelmed. This was a, a mountain of a man. My hand just disappeared inside of his as I shook his hand with eyes that would pierce your heart and your soul. And I remember seeing him shortly before he died and he was just a shell of the man that he had been when I first met him. But David died serving the Lord until his last days. And he died truly happy and at peace. He was fully confident that his True reward was awaiting him in heaven through his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to contrast David with one of the musicians that he was the attorney for, Jerry Lee Lewis. 
you may remember him. He was known as and is known as the rock and roll's first great wild man. His nickname is the killer. Uh, he's known for his pill popping, alcoholic, womanizing rock and roll fame. He lives a life or lived a life and maybe perhaps still lives a life as an old man, wild and reckless. Famous for songs like Whole Lot of Shaking Going On and Great Balls of Fire. He grew up in a poor farming family in South Louisiana in the 1930s and 40s. But many people don't know that he grew up in a very strong Assemblies of God family. Jimmy Swaggart is actually one of his cousins. His parents tried to force Jerry Lee Lewis to go to Bible college, which he did, and eventually got expelled for his behavior. He's been married seven times, once more than uh, once more to, to more than one woman at a time, and once to his 13-year-old cousin. About four years ago, a Christian magazine did an interview of Jerry Lee Lewis. And the reporter asked him during the context of the interview whether he thought he was going to go to heaven when he dies. And listen to what he said. I have always been worried about whether I'm going to heaven or hell. I still am. I worry about it every night before I go to bed. It's a very serious situation. I mean, you worry when you breathe your last breath, where are you going to go? Do you see the contrast? (laughs) The contrast between these two men that were connected by one being the attorney and one being the musician. One, my friend David, sure and certain, secure in assurance of God's love and acceptance and blessing and eternal life. Not because he was a successful attorney, not because he went to seminary, not because he used his wealth in in ministering to so many people around the globe, but because he was resting in his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other, worrying every night if he would be able to go to heaven. It's not just unbelieving pagans that worry about that, who lack an assurance of God's grace. Even Christians do, godly Christians, even brothers and sisters in Christ that are in this room at this very moment. And although our Westminster standards remind us that the assurance of faith is not of the essence of faith, some Christians might struggle to have an assurance of their faith, yet still The scriptures teach us that it is something that we should desire, something that we should ask the Lord for, and something that we should pursue by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Revelation 7 gives us an incredibly powerful foundation for the assurance that is ours through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we look at that, let's just remind ourselves a little bit about the context. I mentioned earlier that we're in this second cycle of uh, uh, getting a picture of, of history from God's and our perspective. We looked in chapters 4 and 5 of the picture of world history from God's perspective. The picture from the throne room in heaven. And we saw who was in control. We see this scroll of God's plan, of God's will. And we see that only the Lamb of God is able to open that scroll and to read it. We looked at chapter 6 and saw that what happens when that scroll is opened 
God's plan is affected. And we looked last time at these first four seals of the seven seals on the scroll, the four horsemen and riders who bring judgment on rebellious humanity and use persecution and trials and tribulations to purify God's people. We looked last time at the fifth seal as it was opened and we saw this picture of what was taking place in heaven. These martyred saints that were crying out for the justice of God as they were robed and resting in Christ himself. And we also saw the sixth seal as it was opened at the end of chapter six and the final judgment that comes at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we come to chapter seven and chapter seven is essentially an interlude. It's a pause. There's a pause because at the end of chapter six, if you remember, there was a question that was asked. We're in the midst of the great day of judgment. John says, who can stand? Who can stand in this day of judgment? And chapter 7 takes a pause. It stops to answer that question for us. And what John sees and hears in chapter 7 is meant to fill God's people with confidence and assurance and certainty of their faith. Not because it's their faith or how strong their faith is, but because in whom their faith is. The Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 7 fills us with an assurance of God's love, God's faithfulness, God's acceptance of the security that we have of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. What John sees in chapter 7 is a picture of the church on earth or sometimes referred to as the church militant and the church in heaven, sometimes referred to as the church triumphant and also the church in silence. So let's look at those three things in this vision of John and reflect on what difference it makes for us today. The first thing that John sees is the church on earth, sometimes referred to as the church militant. You see that in verses 1 through 8. And the question that comes to our minds very quickly is verses 4 through 8 is who who are these 144,000 that are mentioned here? There are lots of opinions out there about who those 144,000 are. Some who use a overly literal uh, translation and understanding interpretation of Revelation uh, believe that this is a literal 144,000 people and, and believe that they are ethnic Jewish people who are converted to Christ after the church has been taken out of the world and before the final judgment comes. There are lots of good reasons to think that's not the best explanation. I'm not going to go into all the details now. If that is something that interests you, come and ask me. I will walk you through the various reasons why I don't think that's the best interpretation. I think the best way of understanding who these 144,000 are is that this is a symbolic number. We've already talked earlier about how we see numbers in symbolic ways throughout Revelation. And the number 12 is a significant number. 12 is a number in the Old Testament that references the 12 tribes of Israel. And 12 is another number that is important in the New Testament as we think of the 12 apostles. And throughout history, the church has used that understanding of thinking about the 12 tribes in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament as representing God's people, both in the Old and the New Testament and throughout history. This 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Another number that means completion. 
We're not here learning about 144,000 literal people from specific tribes mentioned, the national Israelites. But what he is seeing here with this 144,000 is God's true people on earth at any given time. The Jews and the Gentiles. They'll come up again in chapter 14 where we'll see that they all have the name of the Lamb and the Father written on them and they are referred to as the redeemed of the earth. But I would tell you that what is more important than who they are is whose they are. John saw at the beginning of chapter 7, there were these four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. In the scriptures and in ancient literature, wind often was a symbol of judgment. And here we have these angels who are being instructed to hold back the judgment from blowing across the world for now. And we read that John saw another angel, one who ascended from the rising sun and had the seal of the living God. Perhaps we're getting a picture of the risen Christ. This angel who has authority over the other angels calls out to them. He who had these angels who had the power to hold back the judgment and to bring it forth. This other angel calls out to them. And what does he say about these 144,000 in verse 3? He tells them, he tells the angels, they are not to unleash God's judgment on the earth until the servants of God are sealed. That tells us who they are, whose they are. They belong to someone They are sealed as the servants of the Lord. Now that idea of a seal is a significant tool in ancient cultures. It was used to identify the owner of something. It was a mark of ownership. Uh, We think of like the signet rings that were used in ancient cultures that would be pressed into wax or clay. And it was used to identify the the authenticity of of where it was coming from. That it was uh, truly coming from the owner of that ring. It was used to authenticate what was sealed. It was to say that what is sealed is legitimate and true and real and genuine and could be trusted. Do you see the significance of what we're being told here? God's people are sealed. They are marked as being owned. They, they, are, they have the mark of God's ownership put on them. They are, they are authenticated as genuine children of God. God himself will protect them from judgment. And that doesn't mean that God's people are free from suffering and trials and persecutions in this world. After all, we looked at the messages to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And we saw persecution and trials and tribulations not only currently in the first century, but the promise that that would be the case until Jesus came back a second time. But what we are being reminded here with the the truth that God's people are sealed is that they will be protected. They will be sustained. They are safe. They are secure. They are assured that they indeed will persevere and make it to the end. Now, Revelation 7 doesn't tell us specifically much about that seal, but other places in the scriptures do. Ephesians chapter 1 mentions that seal. In verses 13 and 14, listen to what Paul says. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Isn't that incredible news? If you're in Christ this morning, if you believe, you've trusted in Christ, you've put your faith in Christ, you believe the gospel, Paul says, then you have been sealed, just as we see in Revelation, with what? With the Holy Spirit. Do you see that God is not only the one who seals us, but He is the seal. The Holy Spirit is the seal. That makes us all the more encouraged. It makes our faith all the more certain. We read in Romans chapter 8, another helpful description of the seal on the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If we believe the gospel, Paul says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And if we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, then we are sons of God. And if we are sons of God, we have been adopted. We are God's very children. And if we are children of God, then we are heirs. Fellow heirs, even with our Savior. This is what John is seeing. He's seeing who these 144,000 are. And he's seeing even more importantly, whose they are. That they have been sealed by God himself. The Holy Spirit. John gets another part of this vision. It's in verses 9 through 17. He not only sees the church on earth, the church militant, but he also sees the church in heaven. The church that's sometimes referred to as triumphant. Look, he, sees, uh, he says that in uh, verse, beginning of verse 9 of chapter 7. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now who are these people that he sees? Well, one of the things that we see is that it is a vast group of people. It's a great multitude that no one could number. We also see that it's a very diverse group of people. You see that also in verse 9. They're from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages. This is not just a multi-ethnic congregation. These are people from all ethnicities and all nations and all tribes and peoples and languages. As, as God's people were reading this and hearing this for the first time, they, they would have been reminded, particularly those from the Jewish background, they would have been reminded of God's promises in the Old Testament. Specifically, they would be seeing how the promise that God had made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis was now coming to fruition in fullness. Genesis chapter 12 through 22, God makes promises to Abraham about what he's going to do in Abraham and through Abraham. Listen to some of the things that Abraham is told in Genesis 12 through 22, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the Lord brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. 
so shall your offspring be. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. We're reading here in Revelation 7, nothing less than the confirmation of the uh, of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. These people are vast, they are diverse, but they've also been tested. We read that in verses 13 and 14. One of the elders addressed me, that's John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the ones who have come out of this great tribulation. They, they are a vast group. They are a diverse group. They are a tested group. So who are they? John is seeing the exact same group that he had seen earlier. Those that are referred to as the 144,000 in verses 1 through 8 are the same as this great multitude that he is now seeing in heaven, but he's seeing it from different viewpoints. He's now seeing them gathered before the throne in heaven, worshiping the Lord. They've come through the tribulations of life, and now they are safe and secure. Indeed, they are the church triumphant. What are they doing? You can see that in verses 9 through 12. We read that they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They had palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we read in verses 11 and 12 that they're joined at that point by the angels and the four living creatures and all of God's people. And they fell down and they worshipped God Himself. We also read at the beginning of verse 15 that they are before the throne and they serve the Lord day and night in his temple. Here is what they're doing. They are worshiping, they are serving, they are glorifying, and they are enjoying the Lord. But perhaps the most important thing that I want you to see this morning is how they're described. We get that in verses 13 through 17. The first thing that we're told is that they're clothed. The end of verse 9 and again in verse 13, we're told that they're clothed in white robes. That their robes have been washed and that they've been made white in the blood of the Lamb. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Those white robes show up throughout Revelation and they are symbolic for righteousness, for purity. And the picture that we see here of God's people is of them being wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. They have been made, their robes have been made white because they've been washed and they've been washed in what? The blood of the Lamb. This is a picture of God's people being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His life of perfect love and obedience to His Father is given to us, is wrapped around us. Notice all of these verbs about being clothed are in the past tense. They've been clothed, they've been washed, they've been made white. This is something that's done. It's completed, it's finished. It's not just that they're clothed. We also read in verse 15 that they are sheltered. I will shelter them with God's very presence. It's the Greek word skenose. It means dwell with, to pitch a tent with, to camp around. The Lord's very 
presence, lives with his people, dwells with his people, shelters and protects his people. And so it makes sense then that we would read at the beginning of verse 17, this incredible image that perhaps maybe takes us a little bit by surprise. We read in verse 17 that the lamb is in the midst of the throne and the lamb will be the shepherd. Isn't that an interesting image? The lamb is the shepherd. The one who lays down his life and sheds his blood so that we might have our robes washed in it to be white as snow is also the one that leads and guides and protects us as our tender shepherd. And then we also read that they were comforted. Verses 16 and the end of verse 17. All of the needs are provided for. And Jesus wipes away every tear. Every tear of disappointment. Every tear related to our sin and our shame. Every tear of injustice that we endure. Every tear of pain. And if you're in Christ this morning, this isn't some fluffy dream. This is a description not just of people in the first century. This is a description of you. You are clothed. You are sheltered. You are shepherded. You are comforted. Now, before we think just for a few moments about what all this means for us, notice this last thing that we see about the church. We've seen the church militant on earth. We've seen the church triumphant in heaven. And now we see the church in silence. It's at the beginning of verse 8, chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, we've been looking at these seals of the scrolls. The six seals came to us in chapter uh, 6. And we read and looked at those six seals. And then chapter 7 that we're talking about today is this interlude, this pause, where the question that's asked at the end of chapter 6 can be answered. And now we come to the seventh and final seal, chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 2 is going to move us on to the next cycle, the third cycle. But before we get there, the seventh seal is opened. And we read that when the seventh seal was opened, there was rejoicing in heaven. No, there was silence. There was silence. September 5th, 2004. At about 1 o'clock in the morning, Hurricane Francis made landfall near Sewell's Point, Florida. It crossed directly over a small apartment where our family has vacationed for some 44 years. It came on shore as a Category 2 hurricane. It had been a Category 4 just hours before. Sustained winds as it came on shore of 105 miles an hour. The whole area had been evacuated out of necessity and by police order. The area was completely deserted except for Mr. and Mrs. Cowan's. Mr. and Mrs. Cowens had been longtime residents of that little apartment complex. At that point, they were in their late 80s. And they said, we are not leaving. The police did everything they could to make sure that they were safe and secure. And the Cowens hunkered down and went through the storm and safely came out on the other end. 
The storm, Francis, was particularly a slow-moving storm, especially when it got to land. It was only moving about five miles an hour as it came across onto the shoreline. And the eye of the storm was about 50 miles across. So there was actually a lot of time once the eye finally came over the apartment of the Cowans. And so the Cowans decided that when the eye came, they would go outside and go swimming, skinny-dipping, in the pool of the apartment complex. I mean, after all, it was deserted. There was nobody around for miles and miles. And it was quiet. The wind had died down. The rain had stopped. The sunshine was coming down in the midst of the eye of the storm. And there were Mr. and Mrs. Cowens out in the pool, skinny dipping in the midst of Hurricane Francis. It was peaceful. It was private. It was safe. It was quiet. And we use that phrase sometimes, don't we? Uh, The quiet before the storm. And they had endured part of the storm. They were having quiet until the next part of the storm was coming. Here we read in chapter 1 or chapter 8, verse 1, that the storm had already arrived. We've looked at that already. The sixth seal had been opened. We read at the end of chapter 6. The final judgment had arrived. The rebellious humanity had been judged. God's people had been safely saved and secured. And now the time for the seventh and final seal was opened. And when it opened, we read that there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That's an unusual statement. It's almost anticlimactic. What's going on? Here's what's going on. All of heaven has been seeing the trials and the tribulations of life between the first and second coming of Jesus. It is culminating in the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And they have seen God's people being brought safely through the tribulations of this life. They see them as those who are sealed and marked out as God's very own people, sealed with the Holy Spirit himself. They've been clothed in the robes that have been washed in the blood of Jesus. They are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. They have been sheltered in the presence of the Lord, shepherded by the Lamb, provided for and comforted, and every tear has been wiped away. They have been assured and certain of their position and place in God's house forever, and they are stunned. They're in awe. Their breath has been taken away. There are no words, and so for 30 minutes in heaven, silence. It's essentially an act of worship as they acknowledge this wonderful God. So what does all this mean for us? Well, two things as you leave today. The first is that there is real, true assurance for those who are in Christ. Revelation 7 answers the question that was asked at the end of chapter 6. Did you see it? Chapter 6, the great day of the Lord of judgment has come. Who can stand in the face of that judgment? John gets the answer in verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what were they doing? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's meant to fill us with immeasurable assurance 
with certainty and hope and encouragement. In those moments when we are tempted to doubt God's love and acceptance and care and concern for us, when we are tempted to doubt our adoption into God's family, perhaps because of the trials and tribulations that we experience in our life, perhaps because of our ongoing sin, which often fills us with shame, perhaps because of the injustices and the brokenness of the world that we see all around us every day, we're tempted to doubt. And Revelation 7 is given to us to strengthen our assurance in the midst of those things. The trials and the tribulations in this world between the first coming and the second coming are real and they are true and they are to be expected. And Jesus told us so. But God has promised that he will bring us through them just as he has always done with his people. And yes, we sin. We even have besetting sins that we have to lean against perhaps for all of our life. And that sometimes fills us with shame and doubts of God's love, but God reminds us of who we are. We have been sealed with no one less than the Holy Spirit. We have been washed white in the blood of Jesus. We have been clothed in His righteousness. We have been sheltered in the presence of the Lord. We have a shepherd who watches over and protects us and comforts us, providing everything that we need. Paul says in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Paul was getting at in Ephesians 1. When we believe, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 8, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by who we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So what do we do when we don't feel like it? What do we do when we are finding those moments of a lack of assurance? We need to remember in those moments what is objectively and certainly true. Even when it doesn't feel that way to us, our hope and our trust has to be first and foremost here in the Word of God. This doesn't change. This doesn't waver. Our feelings, our sense of God's care and love and protection over us may waver at times greatly. We may struggle for years or perhaps great seasons of our life to have a sense of the assurance that we have of God's love. But this does not change. And this tells us who we are. And this tells us what is true. And so in those moments when we are prone to doubt, when we are prone to have a lack of assurance, then we go to the word and we put our hope and our trust in the word. Another thing we ought to do is to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to continue bearing witness with our spirits that we are children of God. That's what Paul said in Romans, right? That's what the spirit does. What better thing to pray than what the spirit has already told us he does? Pray for the Spirit to bear witness with your spirit that indeed you are a child of God. Another thing you can do is to make use of the ordinary means of grace. Don't turn off the faucet of God's normal, ordinary flow of assurance. The Word, the sacraments, prayer, 
those things. God gives us these wonderful tools as a way of working assurance into our hearts and our minds. Don't, don't turn those things off and run away from them. And one last thing we can do in those moments when we are struggling to have assurance is to get God's people around us. I know often our, hesit- our, our, our tendency would be to run away from God's people in that moment, but when we're lacking assurance, that's when we need God's people around us. We need God's people to tell us the truth of the word, to remind us and to encourage us. And then lastly, one last takeaway. Revelation 7 is giving us a picture of the church in heaven praising and worshiping the Lord for this amazing salvation. Sometimes they're doing it with words. We use those words to begin our service this morning. Sometimes they're doing it in their silence. The more that we get this vision worked into our hearts and our imagination, the more that we see the assurance and and certainty of faith that is ours, the more that we should be moved to worship now, here in this life. We remember Augustus uh, Toplady's hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone, that final verse. Sometimes it's a little bit confusing to us. He says, my name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure. The glorified spirits in heaven. And that's the phrase that often causes us to get tripped up sometimes. What does that mean? The church triumphant may be more happy at this very moment, but they are no more secure in God's love and care and grace than God's people here on earth. And that should move us to worship Him personally, whether in planned times that we set up to read the Word and to pray and to worship the Lord, or in spontaneous times that we don't expect when God floods us with the reminder of His grace and mercy. It should cause us to worship the Lord, not only in reading his word and prayer, but also in our vocations. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Whether we're called to be a student or a stay-at-home parent or a nurse or a project manager or a farmer or a law enforcement officer or a doctor or teacher, whether we're serving in the community and doing ministry, whether we're working with our hands and creating things, whether we're called to be an artist, whatever we're called to do, we ought to present our bodies as a living sacrifice in those things. And as we do that, that is spiritually worshiping the Lord. And we ought to do it corporately as well, weekly, Gathering to worship with God's people. Being reminded that sometimes when we gather, the best way we can worship is just to be silent. That is one reason why we have periods of silence sprinkled throughout our service. As we prepare to come to worship before the call to worship, we spend some time quietly meditating on who we're coming to worship. When we come to the Lord to confess our sins, we not only do that together out loud in a corporate way, but we also have silent confession. (laughs) And during the Lord's Supper that we're about to partake in, we sing a hymn and sometimes we read scripture at the beginning part of the Lord's Supper. But we also have a time when we can be quiet and to silently meditate on these wonderful things. That's sometimes the best way we can worship. I hope as you hear... John speak in Revelation 7 that you are filled 
with incredible assurance, hope, peace, the certainty of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that as that comes over you in greater and greater ways, that you are people that are moved to truly worship Him in every aspect of our being. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the Westminster Standards that remind us that the assurance of our faith is not of the very essence of faith. And so we know that there are times in this world, in this life, when we're going to struggle to believe the truths of your word and that that doesn't make us less of a Christian. And yet, Father, we also know that this assurance of our faith is something that is good. It is something that comes from you, from your Holy Spirit. And so we pray earnestly and boldly that you would fill us with an assurance of our faith, that you would remind us that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and that indeed he would be at work bearing testimony in our spirits that we indeed are children of the living God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew tells us in his gospel that as Jesus and the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord's Supper is meant to help us with our assurance. How real are these elements? As they come around to you, you can touch them. You can see them. If you put them up to your nose, you can smell them. Right? These are real elements. And as we partake, we're reminded, as real as these elements are, that's how real God's love is for his people. Yes, the elements stay what they are. They are bread. They are the fruit of the vine. But they point us to the greater reality of Christ. And that's meant to fill us with assurance. It's meant to fill us with encouragement and hope and peace. That indeed, the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed. It's finished. It's completed. And if you're in Christ this morning, you've been washed in that blood. And as we, sung, as we sang earlier in our service in the, the hymn, uh, it, that is our assurance. It's not my righteousness. It's not my family background. It's not what good works I might be doing. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to eat and to drink and to be reminded of these wonderful truths and to be strengthened in your faith. But if you're here and you, you are not a believer in Christ and you haven't made a public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in a church that believes the gospel and believes that God's word is true and authoritative, then it's actually not a good thing for you to partake in the Lord's Supper. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that uh, when we come to the table as unbelievers, as we come to the table in a way that's unworthy, not looking to Christ for our salvation, then we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And so if you're here this morning and you are a believer in Christ and you've put your faith in Christ and you've publicly professed that faith here at Trinity or another church that believes and teaches the gospel, then eat and drink, 
be encouraged, be assured of your faith that is in Christ Jesus. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then we would invite you to allow the elements to pass you by. There are some prayers at the back of the bulletin that you can use during this time uh, as we partake in the Lord's Supper. So let's pause and let's thank the Lord for giving us this means of grace. Father, we thank you that your desire is for us to be assured, for us to be certain of the hope that we have in Christ. And we thank you that you give us tools to that end, even something like the Lord's Supper. So we pray, Father, that you would be at work here. This is your work. We pray that the Holy Spirit would take what we're doing, something very ordinary, something every, uh, very every day, but that you would use it for this very important purpose that you would strengthen us, that you would remind us of these glorious truths and that you would send us out full of hope and the certainty of our faith that we might truly love and obey you and love our neighbors this week ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.